if his people prayed. You know, I have to say this has been quite a long process. And at first, I was so frustrated because none of these little changes that he kept telling me he made really made a difference to me, and I couldn't see the results of it. But as I'm going through this and I've spent some time in the house, I can finally see that these little changes have actually made a huge difference in my life. And I feel like I can finally own this house. It's mine. I can, I can be here and I can spend time in it and retreat in it. And I feel like the only thing that's left to do now is just to go into my room and just sit with myself and relax and have this time to myself to really think and reflect about all the places I'm going to go and the people that I'm going to bring into this house and all the changes that are going to keep happening. I think I really like everything that's been done here. Welcome to the final installment and final week in the prayer makeover series. And as you see, if you're just walking in here, that we had a little makeover of our own here, didn't we? So we wanted to match the makeover, of course, to the prayer makeover. And today we are going to talk, for those who have been kind of following along, what we're doing is we're building a house of prayer. And we're going through all the different rooms in the house and making sure that our house is a balanced house because we said that prayer is not something that we do. It's more of a place that we live in, in a house of prayer. And that house of prayer has to have a room for thanksgiving, a room for repentance, room for simple, room for structured, a room for intercessory prayer. And today, we're going to get to the pinnacle of the house, the top floor, the bedroom of the house. And what we said in the very beginning is that the reason that we build the house is to get to this place. The reason that we did everything else was to enjoy our intimacy with God in this room. The verse that I showed you all at the very beginning of the series was Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. We kind of said at the beginning that we see like Jesus knocking at the door and we see him saying, I want to come in and live in this house. Will you build me a house? And we said, okay, Lord, we're going to build a family room like this, and we're going to build the, the, the kitchen like this, and we're going to build the bathroom, and then we're going to build all these different rooms. And now Jesus says, okay, your room, your house is built. Everything is ready. Okay, now I want to come in, and I want to spend some time with you. And that's the reason why we did everything that we did. It is now time to enjoy the final room in prayer, the bedroom of prayer, which is what we're going to talk about today is liturgical prayer. Probably not what everyone thought when I said the high point of prayer and intimacy, and especially those who, who understand or have attended liturgy maybe once or twice, and kind of, it's kind of a weird thing. You say, wait a minute, that is the pinnacle? Stick with me today, and I'll show you why. But before I get into that, let me tell you a story of why liturgical prayer is so important. It's a story that happened to me three days ago, four days ago on Wednesday morning. I was at my daughter's school. They had like a Thanksgiving event. Okay, so she's in first grade, and then like there's the two first grade classes, and one class dressed up as the Indians, the other class dressed up as the pilgrims. All right, and they walked in, and they had dinner, and it was very, 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 very cute. I had no idea what I was going to. The paper said need a parent, so I needed the volunteer hours, so whatever. Like I just went, I'm just going to show up at this thing. I walk in a little bit late. Okay, I was running a little bit late, and as soon as I walked in, there was, picture the scene, a bunch of kids, like the my kids' class hadn't come yet. So it was the other class sitting there, and then like 30 parents, most of them moms, okay, sitting around and in, in the outside, and I kind of bust in. And everyone stares right at me and is looking at me, and I'm just like, it's okay, like carry on, carry on. And I try to, I'm now going back to, now I'm in seventh grade, okay? When you walk in and you're the awkward guy in the party who no one's talking to, that's me. Because I'm kind of standing there, and I'm, you know what I mean, and I'm pretending you look at your phone, like, you know, like as if you got something important going on. Because no one is, like, they're all talking amongst themselves, and I'm just the kind of a guy. Gets even worse, okay? Eventually, my daughter's class walks in, okay? So now the attention is on the kids. And most parents, when the kids walk in, will do what? Take a picture, okay? But those who know my daughter know I'm not allowed to take pictures of her. 
Like, she is, does not like anyone to take pictures of her, and the only way that she would allow me to come is promise, don't take picture. So now not only am I the weirdo dressed like this guy, like the guy that security should have stopped at the door, I'm not talking to anyone, no one's talking to me, and now everyone's taking a picture of their kid, and I'm just standing there in the corner, just waiting for security to descend upon me and remove me out of this room. Finally, one lady, out of the goodness of her heart, sees me struggling over there, and she comes up to me, and she asks me the standard question that people meet me for the first time. They ask me. She asks me, what are you? Okay? <laughs> what are you? Okay? What are you? And, of course, I always want to respond back with, what are you? <laughs> I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed right now. That's what I am. What are you? But I'm nice, and the lady's talking to me, and I'm just looking for anyone to latch on to so I don't look like a weirdo. Like, I show that I belong here in some way, shape, or form because my kid won't acknowledge my presence. So I'm just standing there like decoration in the room. What are you? Priest? Orthodox? That like Greek? Well, it's kind of like Greek, but it's Coptic, Egypt, all this kind of stuff. And y'all know how the story goes. And then she started asking me questions. And she said, what is your Sunday service like? That's a new question. And I quickly gathered from her that she's a very strong believer. She's a very strong Christian, and she knows what she's talking about. She's not someone, like, who's just kind of, like, she understands the landscape of Christianity. She started asking me. So I told her, you know, like, the liturgy and stuff like that. And she started to ask a lot more about it and communion and stuff like that. And then she started to tell me, I, I, I said something. I don't know what I said when I answered it. I said something that opened the floodgates. And all of a sudden, this lady didn't care about her kid or my kid. I didn't even see my kid after that. She kept asking about our service and asking about the liturgy and asking about what we do. And then she started to tell me how she loves her church. She loves her church. And she grew up in a church and she loves her church. But she basically told me that she feels something's missing. And she said that she doesn't feel the reverence in her church the way that she thinks church should be. And she even said something. She said she feels like the worship center has become a fashion center. You know, and she feels like it's become an entertainment center. And she was saying it in a very, like, she wasn't bashing her church in any way. She was saying it in a very respectful way. And then she said one thing that let me know this lady is deep. She said, I just can't imagine that what we're doing is how they worshipped back in the first century. That's what she said. That's, that's a deep lady. That's a lady who understands. She said, I just can't imagine that what we're doing on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis is what Peter and Paul and James and John and those guys were doing back when the church first started. End result of that 15-minute conversation, number one, me and Marianne are heading over there for dinner in a couple weeks. They invited us over for dinner. Number two, she and her women's group are planning a trip out here to STSA sometime soon. And number three, most importantly, security was not called this day. <laughs> is it surprising to you that a person who is very committed to their church, very spiritual, she was telling me how, like, she's adopted, like, she has kids, but she's adopted kids to help them. She goes on mission trips. Like, she's very spiritual. Is it surprising you that someone like that would express frustration and express that, like, something is missing? Is that surprising? At first it was to me, but then the more I thought about it, I said, it's not surprising. You know why? Because we, me and you, all of us hum human beings, we're all the same. We're all made in the image and likeness of God, and we were made to worship our Creator. Worshiping God is what you and I were made for. And there's a little piece inside of us that isn't comfortable with the state that we are in unless we are connected to God. We don't admit it sometimes. We look for anything else to fill it. But until we have that oneness with God, that intimacy with God, something isn't settled inside. And we look, try to fill that void with anything that we can. But until we have that, something isn't settled inside. And the only way to fulfill that void of intimacy with God is through liturgical prayer. We were made with a void that can only be filled by oneness with God. And the place where that oneness is filled is at the table that the Lord himself instituted and said, this is where you and I become one. You and me and me and you. Let's take a step back. Let's define some terminology. The word liturgy. Okay, we're talking about liturgical prayer. What does the word liturgy mean? Liturgy does not mean communion. Liturgy literally means work of the people. Okay, so liturgy, think of it like, that's why the room is the good analogy. Liturgy is not the oneness. Liturgy is the room where the oneness takes place. 
And in the Orthodox Church, we have many liturgies. The most famous is being the liturgy of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is where communion is, but that's the liturgy of the Eucharist. So liturgy just means, liturgy means a group of people getting together and doing something, okay? So we have liturgy, like a funeral is like a liturgical service. A wedding is a liturgical service. These are all liturgical services, but usually when we say liturgy, what's commonly referred to as the liturgy of the Eucharist. So that's exactly what I'm speaking about today, but just so you understand that it's a broader picture. Where did liturgy come from? All right, we're going to go with the Bible. All right, and passages y'all y'all probably heard before. Matthew 26, 26. Who started the first liturgy of the Eucharist? Jesus himself said, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is what we do on a Sunday to Sunday basis. We get together and we fulfill this commandment where Jesus gathered all his disciples around a table. All of us disciples, we gather around a table. And Jesus commanded us to do this, to take this, to eat this, and to drink this. And he told us exactly why for the remission of our sins. Next passage. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever, call, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Key passage, key sentence here. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. We believe that every Sunday when we gather here together around the table of the Lord, in a mystical way that cannot be explained, cannot be put into a formula of science, that the bread and the wine which is offered up is returned back to us as body and blood of Christ. And we eat his flesh and we drink his blood. Now, I'm going to call a timeout, okay? Because I just said a sentence that is kind of a weird sentence. There's two groups of people in this room. There's church people and non-church people. Churchy people and non-churchy people. Churchy people who grew up in this stuff, who know this stuff inside and out, who have heard this stuff. I say to you, we eat flesh, we drink blood. You say, yes, let's do it. And you don't think twice about it. Unchurchy people say, that's a little weird. That's the stuff that they talk about in the movies for the bad guys. And I'm telling you, if you are an unchurchy person, you have every right to think that. And do not let a churchy person say, <gasps> when you say that I don't understand, or I don't know how, or I don't believe, that's okay. It's okay. No one is born believing all this stuff. Anytime you introduce a new concept that you haven't heard before, give yourself time. So I'm giving you permission to ask questions and to say, like, I don't really get this stuff. Can someone explain it to me? That's what we're going to do right now. And in fact, if you say, this is a weird thing to say, this is kind of a weird concept. Did you know that when Jesus first said this 2,000 years ago, the people all said the exact same thing? Later on in this passage, verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? That's okay. That's what I'm saying is that, that's okay to say, like, I don't get this. Someone explain this to me. Don't feel bad if, if this is a new idea. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That's what we don't want to do. We want it, we're okay to say, this is a hard saying. Can someone under explain this to me? Because if we don't understand it, we end up like they did in the last verse, which just, by the way, happens to be John 666. So you know that's a bad guys, okay? When it says many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more, okay? Why do they walk with him no more? Because Jesus said, my body is flesh. They said, no, 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 we can't get that. My blood, my, my, my blood is drink indeed. They said, no, 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 we don't get that. And they rejected the body and blood of Christ. We're going to try to understand it. What does it mean? How does it look? And most importantly, what is it that we are receiving and participating in? Key thing, though, to understand as we're going to do this, I'm going to try to explain the basis of liturgical prayer, and we're going to try to understand it, but we are not going to dissect it as a science experiment. The problem where many people get tripped up is they try to take a mystery of God 
and make it into a mathematical formula, like the question people ask me. At what moment in time exactly is the bread the body? Like, now. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's like saying two people get married. At what moment are they one flesh? I don't know. I know they walk in one, two, they walk out one. I know we walk in with bread, walk out with body. I know it's around this general area of time, but the second is not, it's not a frog that you dissect. We don't dissect Jesus like a frog and say, okay, this is where the spleen is. Like, we don't do it like that. And there's an element of faith and of mystery here, things that we cannot understand. Because we are not talking about if you could understand it, then it wouldn't be anything divine. It'd be something human. So let's take a step into this with an, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Let's try to understand it, but let's go in with the attitude of, not in a scientific way, not of dissecting a frog, but an understanding, what does Jesus mean when he says, my body, my flesh is body, is food, and my blood is drink? All right, big picture of the Eucharist. Most important thing about the Eucharist is to understand this. The Eucharist is the fulfillment of Christ's ministry on earth. Jesus came to this earth to get something done. He was a man on a mission. What was his mission? We say that his mission, everything begins and ends with the Eucharist. Everything begins and ends with the Eucharist. It is the perfection of our faith or the completion. Why? Why did Jesus come to this earth? To give us nice teachings? If Jesus wanted to give us teachings alone, he could have done that without dying on the cross. He could have done that much easier way. Like he didn't have to go through all that he went through. He could have sent an email. Like he's God. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have written the Bible and sent it down fax or something like that. Beam it down. Jesus didn't come just to give us the Bible. Jesus didn't come just to like give nice teachings. Jesus came for one reason. So that he could live in here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. St. Paul talks about the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to all his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. That was all St. Paul giving an introduction, which is saying, guys, we figured out the reason that Christ came to this earth, the reason that we go to church, the reason that we pray, the reason that we read our Bible. Why? Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of those things point to one moment, or one, one um, not one moment, as much as one state. That's the right word. One state, which is this void. Christ lives inside there. Think back with me in, in the beginning of time. In the Old Testament, God created Adam and Eve, and his goal was to live with them. And to have intimacy and oneness with them and live with them in the garden. The Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. We talked about this before, that naked doesn't mean just physically, but meaning there was oneness. There was, there was no barrier. Adam and Eve messed up, barriered. And now all of a sudden, God was on that side of a wall and man was on this side. And God, all his thinking was, I got to break down this wall so that I could be inside them. In the beginning, he started, he would appear on a mountain. And he would so desire to have intimacy with man, but because of this wall, he couldn't. So God would say, okay, you guys stay over there. I'll shake the mountain, and I'll bring Moses up here. I'll shake the mountain. I'll talk to him, and then he'll relay the message to you. That's not what God wanted. So eventually God said, okay, let's get a little bit closer. He said, build me a tabernacle. What's the tabernacle, God? That's a place where you can live there, and I can be at least a little bit closer to you. And I'll dwell here, but still, because of this wall, you can't come in and out. Only one, only certain people can even enter this, and only one of them can enter this room once a year, and then he's got to leave. Like you can have, you can touch, you got to leave. And then same thing when he went with the temple. God said, okay, now build a stationary place that people can come visit, but still there was that wall broken. So then Jesus came down to earth. And when Jesus came down to earth, he came to change all of that. He came to live on this earth, to die, to rise, but not just rise and then ascend and leave. Not just die, rise, ascend, and leave. We always talk about in the church that the completion of our faith is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is the day that God 
came and dwelt through the Holy Spirit inside man. That's why that Pentecost is the date that we circle when it's all been fulfilled. And it's all the prophecy has been fulfilled. And all knowledge has been given. And the faith has been handed down. Not on Easter. And not on Ascension. But not until Pentecost. Where? God came and lived here. That's Christ in me, the hope of glory. What's the Eucharist? The Eucharist is how mysteriously we relive Pentecost every time. Because the Eucharist is where, if those who, who have attended the, the liturgical services before, what's the structure of it? The structure is the beginning. We have lots of readings from the Word of God. What's that? That's the ministry of Christ on this earth. Teaching and giving us commands and teaching. But then it doesn't end there. Then we take the next step and we commemorate the Last Supper. We commemorate His death. We say, Amen, Amen, Amen. Your death we proclaim. His resurrection, His ascension. And then it doesn't end right there. It ends when at the very end, we open up our mouth and we receive Christ Himself inside of us. We're going through Christmas, Him coming and preaching, resurrection, ascension, and then at the end, Pentecost. The Bible says that the angels, every time there's a liturgy, and every time there's communion, the angels up in heaven, it says, we partake of that which angels desire to behold. Let me give you my translation of that verse. And every time there's a Eucharistic service, that the angels are up there and like, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to go live in them? Don't do it. Don't do it. You know how the manger was a stinky place and Christ dwelt in the manger? You're like, angels like, no, you can't go down there. Us? is worse than the manger, I'm telling you. Telling you, the manger was, was the Ritz-Carlton compared to our hearts sometimes. And every time, it says, that, it even says, it says, behold, the tabernacle of God is amongst men. That's what the angels say in heaven, book of Revelation. John heard them say, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. God dwells in men. Every time the angels are, <clears throat> we just kind of ho-hum, and we stroll on in, and we flip off our shoes, and we walk up, we grab, and the angels in heaven are like, y'all know what's taking place right now? That God who cannot be contained in the heavens and the earth and the universe cannot contain him is now coming down and dwelling inside you. John chapter 17, verse 21. Show you how this was Jesus' plan from the start. This is Jesus' last words, his last prayer before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The end of his prayer, he says, he's praying to the Father that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. What does one imply? It implies intimacy. It impli implies oneness. It implies you and me and me and you. And that's exactly fulfilled through our liturgical prayer in the Eucharist every Sunday when we gather around the table of the Lord. Nice quote here from one of the fathers of the church, John Chrysostom. We live back in the 3rd and 4th century, 4th and 5th century. We receive within us the same body of our Lord Christ that was born in the manger of Bethlehem, the same body that walked on the Sea of Galilee, the same body that was crucified on Calvary, the same body that was resurrected from the tomb, the same body that ascended into heaven and now sits on the right hand of his Father. There is no power in life greater than this. This was the plan from the start to get to this. This was when God created this whole plan of his son coming down, it was to get to this, that he could be inside each one of us. Okay, so y'all are with me and you agree that we need this oneness with God. All right, and this is God's plan. But the natural question, okay, and again, we're not asking in a, in a rude way or in an arrogant way. We're asking in an asking way. I agree we need communion, but why do I need the liturgy for communion? In other words, other churches gather and they celebrate Sunday service in a different way. Can't they have communion? Can I have communion when I read my Bible? Can I have communion when I pray? Like, why does it have to be liturgy? Why does it, okay, I said, like, the, the communion is to the liturgy, like the intimacy is to the room, okay? Why does it have to be this room where this communion takes place? Valid question? Agree or disagree? Valid question? 
I think it's a very valid question. And I think we should ask. But I don't think we should ask you. I think it is the perfect question to ask, but the 100% wrong audience to ask it to. Do you know who we should ask this question to? Who should we ask this question to? Not the priest. Okay, good try. Okay, we like it when the answer is ask the priest. Okay, but even, even, not even the priest. We should ask God. You know why? Because it's his communion. Because, I'll tell you a little principle of life. Understand this principle applies in every area of life. The recipient, not the giver, determines the nature of the gift. Agree or disagree? I don't sit there on Christmas and say, I want to buy a sports car. And then I look around and say, okay, there's my four-year-old son. I'm going to give him the sports car. I don't say, you know, I would like to purchase a, this is what we used to do, a, a new basketball, a new football, and Father's Day, so I just give it to my dad, and I just take it in the end. The recipient determines the gift. So I don't sit there and say, what do gift do I want to give? I sit there and say, what gift do you want to receive? Ladies, some of us inherited something bad from our culture. Go to someone's house and say, hey, eat this. Here's a banana. And I walk in and say, no, thank you. I don't like bananas. You say, no, you have to eat the banana. And I say, I, I, I don't like the banana. And you say, you're going to eat this banana or you're not leaving here alive. And I say, lady, I hate you and I hate your banana, but I'm going to eat it just to get you off my back. We do this to God sometimes. We do this to God. We don't tell God how we're going to worship him. He is the one who's being worshipped. We ask him. We don't tell him, okay, say, God, I'm going to worship you in this way. And you're going to like it. You're going to eat this banana whether you like it or not. I'm not going to do liturgy. I'm just going to sing a song. It's going to be two minutes. I'm going to read a passage. I'm going to listen to a sermon. Then I'm out. That's how I'm going to worship you. Are you be happy that I worship you? And then you give me communion after that. No, 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 no. The giver doesn't determine the gift. The recipient determines the gift. We should absolutely ask, how is our worship supposed to look like? But we're not supposed to ask each other. We're not supposed to come up with our own idea. We're not supposed to think about it and say, I'd like it to be this way, or I'd like it to be this way, or I'd like it. We're not supposed to ask that way. We're supposed to go to God and say, God, how do you desire to be worshipped? Why is it today that you can look around, and I'm not in any way pointing fingers at anyone or any church? I'm not. Okay? Don't take it that way, because if you take it that way, you're totally missing the spirit of what I'm saying. I always say, this is what, like, my, and this is actually what the church has always been since the beginning. We don't talk about different churches as right and wrong. We never say right and wrong. In the body of Christ, not right and wrong. It's levels of perfection. So we say that other churches have something, okay, but what we want is to get higher and higher and higher and higher. Okay, we want to go from third grade to fourth grade to fifth grade kind of a thing. So I'm not saying that someone who's here is bad, not at all. But what I'm saying is there's deeper. And that deeper is when we ask God. Why is it you can look around today and see so many different ways? You show up on a Sunday and you can find so many different ways that people are worshiping. Because the audience has become the individuals, not God. Sorry. And because the audience continues to change, and the audience has different preferences, and the audience is older or younger, bigger or littler, because the audience likes this or likes this, that's why you see spectrum. If the audience is the one unchanging God, then it should remain the same as it was in the very beginning. How do we know what God wants? How do we know what worship should look like in God's eyes? We can turn to the word of God, Exodus 29. And this is just one passage, and forgive me, I'm intentionally picking a very long and a very difficult and a very detailed, and what I call this in my notes, I say painful detail about how God prescribes in the Old Testament how to be worshiped. It is painful detail. You don't believe me? I'm just bringing you an uh, excerpt right here, Exodus 29. And this is what you shall do to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull, two rams without blemish, unleavened bread, unleavened cakes, Mixed with oil, unleavened wafers, anointed with oil, you shall make them of wheat flour. See, God's whole wheat from the start, okay? You shall put them in one basket and bring them in a basket with the bull and the two rams. You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, you shall take his blood, 
sprinkle it all around the altar. You should cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, put them in pieces with its head. You shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This is an excerpt. And what you can see here is that God gives a painful level of detail as to worship. God is the guy who's saying, when he gave, he said, no, hang it over there. No, no, actually hang it over there. No, make it this big. No, make it that. Make it this color. I don't like that color. Make it that color. The ring should be this side. Make it this kind of wood. Very painful level of detail. And then he goes at the end of this chapter. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. God gave very specific instructions as to how to be worshipped. He did not leave it up to the people to worship as they wanted. And in fact, when the people did what they wanted, it ended up very, very, very bad for the people. Fire and stuff like that, like it wasn't a good situation. Now, some people say, okay, well, this is the Old Testament. What does this have to do with now? Okay, it is the Old Testament, and the practice may have changed. But the God who gave the practice did not change. And we are learning now from the Old Testament. We'll get to the New Testament in a little bit. The Old Testament, we are learning the principle of how good God desires to be worshipped. And it is very specific, and it is very detailed. It is not left up to individual decision. Agree? That's the principle that we can take from the Old Testament. The unchanging God has a way which he specifically desires to be worshipped by his people. Now you say, does that saying that, that uh, am I saying right now that the liturgy hasn't changed all these years? Let me ask you that. Has the liturgy changed? Like when the liturgy was first instituted by Christ and then the early church and they broke bread, is that the same liturgy that we pray today? Has it changed or not changed? Yeah, absolutely. Like we don't want to be ridiculous and say that it hasn't changed at all. And some people say it's exactly the same. No, it's not exactly the same. I mean, that, that's ridiculous to say that a church which started as persecuted and met in people's houses and hidden in basements is the same as a church that meets in George Mason, Middle of Arlington, Virginia. Like, obviously, the church has adapted as the years have gone by. And especially, like I said, a, church, a persecuted church prays different than a church in a cathedral. Okay, so some of the practices have changed. One easy way to say it is the language. The language has changed. It will continue to change. If the language, if people go and, and, and you know, whatever language, Antarctica, okay, they'll pray in Antarctican or whatever the language may be. All right, and some of the practices and customs, like these things, they didn't have projectors back in the day. They didn't have this cool wireless microphone thing around my ear. So the practices are changed, but the principle is the same. The structure is the same. That we give thanks, that we commemorate the words of the Lord, that we offer intercession for the rest of the body, then we participate in the communion and the body and the blood. So don't, don't, don't go off the deep end and say nothing has ever changed, because if you just look, things have changed. But the structure and the principle is still the same. Let's get now to the New Testament and see where did this structure come from. Two things that you need to know about the liturgy, okay, to understand why it's why, why we have to have the liturgy in order to have communion. Number one is that liturgical prayer is biblical prayer. Liturgical worship is biblical worship. Old Testament, we saw God gave structure. New Testament, it's not given as in a detailed way. So some people say that, you know, in the New Testament, they just broke bread. And there's many verses saying they broke bread. But that looked different. And it didn't need to be like the same liturgy and altar and pre Like it wasn't like that. And a lot of people say that the liturgy was introduced into the church when the church got weak. Okay, and the church stopped being spiritual, then they added this liturgy just because they didn't know how to pray anymore on their own. How far back can you go to find the first semblance of the liturgical prayer that we pray? For sure, lots of documents tell you in the third century, second century, first century. That's easy. Can you find it in the Bible, in the New Testament? We see it says breaking bread, but can you see the word liturgy in the New Testament? You can't. Acts chapter 13 says one time, it says as they being Paul and Barnabas, or actually it was a group of the disciples, including Paul and Barnabas. It says as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I have called them. Forget about the verse. That word ministered. Not the best translation. It is. It is the best translation. But we've changed the meaning of the word ministered. We use the word minister to mean like serve. Which it does, but it means a specific kind of service. On your handout there and up on the screen, you don't need a PhD in Greek to understand that word ministered is the word in Greek, litorgonton. It's a cool word. Say it after me. Litorgonton. No, litorgonton. <laughs> you have to do it with your hand like this. Litorgonton. <laughs> yeah. Who has a PhD and can tell me after years and years of theological study, guess what the word litorgonton means? Liturgy. Oh, you deserve a great big prize. Now, don't take a rocket scientist. The word ministered, when it says it, it literally means they were liturgying. Okay? They were liturgying together. And as they were liturgying, the Holy Spirit said this. And the word for those who know Coptic, and the Coptic is the word Evshemshi. Why I bring that up? Because of several hymns, for those who know the Coptic language, the Coptic hymns. Who's Evshemshi? It always talks about this word is used to describe the angels in heaven around the throne of God. And it's that specific. It says that the angels are all around the throne and they are Evshemshiing. Evshemshi is a good word. Say it. Evshemshi. Litorgonton. Evshemshi. Y'all learned two new words today. Okay. Greek and Coptic. Y'all are scholars. Okay. This stuff isn't as hard as people make it out to be. It's if we can get it. Okay. Then it's not that complicated. Okay. It literally means people standing around the throne of God and worshiping in unity and unison together. That's what Evshemshi means. And Liturgonton, as I said, is liturging together. So what this says is, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, which is roughly around the year 50, 50, in the city of Antioch, there was the first semblance of the disciples gathering around the table, around an altar, and liturging together. And what did that liturgy look like? Was it dry and boring? And uh, what was happening during that liturgy? The Holy Spirit knocked on the door, said, excuse me, time out here. I got a message for you guys. That guy and that guy, send him over there. So you see that the liturgy, as some people say, isn't a dry, isn't a boring, isn't spiritless. In fact, it should be the most spiritual and spirit-filled event where the Holy Spirit really is speaking to the people. Biblical worship is liturgical. Now, the greater question, okay, like I, we're working forwards, we're working backwards. Said Old Testament, New Testament. Why is it that way in the Old Testament? Why is it that way in the New Testament? Because that's how it is in heaven. And did you know that worship in heaven will be liturgical as well? It works backwards. Heaven is not after earth. Meaning... God says, this is the way worship is for eternity. And then he reveals it in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's not that heaven is that way because earth is this way. It's earth is this way because heaven is this way. How do we know what worship looks like in heaven? Well, two passages. First, the principle. I'm sorry. Let me get you this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. It says that we here on this earth, for if he were on earth, he would not be talking about Jesus, would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve, talking about the priests who now serve, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. We serve a copy and shadow of things to come. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. God draws the picture in heaven, and then God gives a snapshot. And in the Old Testament, it was like a shadow. Like he just kind of cast a shadow on heaven and said, you know, do your best to kind of make worship look like this. And then as we got to the New Testament, the shadow became more clear, came like a copy. Like I always think of it that heaven is like a card, like a fancy car. What's a fancy car? A uh, Hyundai Sonata, okay? It's like a Hyundai Sonata, okay? And then in the Old Testament, God shined a light on the Sonata so people could see the shape of it. Okay, and people could see like, okay, it's like this big and it looks like that. And we can learn a lot from the shape. In the New Testament, God gave us like an image of it. 
We learned a lot from the shadow. We learned a lot more from the image, the color, you know, some of the details. But we ain't really going to know what that bad boy's like until we get here. Heaven has a certain way of worshiping. God gave a shadow in the Old Testament. New Testament, God made the picture a little clearer. Now let's talk about what it's like in heaven. Two passages. We're going to go to Revelation 4 and then Isaiah 6, which talk about visions of heaven. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders, or the word elders is more appropriately translated presbyters or priests, sitting clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. And in the midst of the throne and all around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Can you imagine what it would look like to come on a Sunday and to gather around a table where there's a throne and to have someone called an elder or like a priest in a white robe with a crown of gold on his head. And that would be strange. That would look so funny to have something like that. And then even more so, can you imagine that around that throne is a bunch of living creatures who are creatures and they, are, they have fire and they're singing holy, holy, holy. <laughs> can you imagine what that would look like? A bunch of angels dressed in white around a throne with flames and singing holy, holy, holy. Can you imagine it? Yeah? Is it 8.30 on Sunday mornings? Let's go to a passage from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. See if this matches. This is what it's like in heaven. See if this matches what your Sunday worship experience looks like. If not, something's not right. In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one seraphim cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then that we sing every single Sunday when we come together? is that we cry that deacons, those who are dressed in the white robes, are symbolic of angels. And they cry to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Let's keep on reading. It says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Some people come and say, Why use incense? And incense, it's like so... The word I hear is, it's so Catholic. Why use incense? We don't like incense. Like, incense is the epitome of man telling God how he should be worshipped, not us, tell, not God telling us. Anyone who says we don't like to use incense is me telling God. Because from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, you see that there's incense. In the Old Testament, there was incense. And we said in the New Testament, there was liturgical prayer. Why? What you got against incense? Why? Like even, you know what the first Christmas gift that Jesus got was? Was incense. Like even baby Jesus liked the incense. Like what you got against incense? It's the epitome of man telling God, this is how I will worship you. This is not, you don't tell me, I will tell you how to be worshipped. God likes incense. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Lord of hosts. This man is standing before the throne, and he's saying, I can't go there. I'm unclean. I'm not worthy. So what does the angel do? The angel. Okay, the angel is not representing God. The angel is representing the minister of God. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. What's that? That's when we approach the table of the Lord and the angel of the Lord... Okay, angel, you open your mouth and you say, I'm not worthy. And the angel says, puts it on your mouth. And he says to you, behold, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Or said another way, given for remission of sins and eternal life to those who shall partake of him. Which is what we say every Sunday before we participate in the table of the Lord.
this, this doesn't happen when you listen to me preach. This, this. Your sin is taken away doesn't happen when we sing a song together and you listen to me preach. It doesn't happen when you pray in your room. It doesn't happen when you read your Bible. All those things are good. I'm not saying those things are bad. Those things are fantastic. That's why we do all those things. But we do them all so we can get to here. And if we do all this stuff in the house, and we got the bathroom, and we got the living room, and we got the family room, and we do not go up to the bedroom, that's what it's all there for. That's the reason that the house was put together, was so that we can get there, and we can receive remission of our sins. You know what this is? This is healing. Every one of us is sick, and that sickness is called sin. And in order for us to be healed of our sickness, we need the angel of the Lord to take something from the altar of the Lord and put it in our mouth and say, your sin is purged. I'm sorry, yeah, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Agree with me? This is what we need. We like to hear sermons. It's nice to hear sermons. It's nice to sing songs. It's nice to do all these things. But this is what we need. We need this touch. We need to receive from the table of the Lord. And the only place that's going to come is through liturgical prayer. Here's a nice quote for you from a guy named Sophrony. He lived back several years ago. That should have said 1946, not 1986. Be very young, okay? <laughs> very wise at a young age if that's really when he lived. should say 1946. He said, in the liturgy, we offer our temporal life with all its concerns. In exchange, God gives us his divine life, which is eternal. Say that one again. In the liturgy. We offer to God our temporal life with its concerns, and God gives us his divine life, which is eternal. We put all of our life, all of our repentance, all of our thanksgiving, all of our intercession, the entire content of our heart and our prayer into the gifts of bread and wine, which we offer to God. And in response, he places his own life in the holy gifts and then offers them back to us. What we do in the liturgy like, make no mistake about it. Just like I said, the bedroom versus the intimacy. The bread and the wine, the bread and the wine that we offered is not magic bread, and it's not magic wine. It's not magic. What it is, the offering is when I pour myself into it, and I give myself into it, and I bring all this stuff, all my concerns, my repentance, everything I pour into it. Jesus takes it, we offer it to him on the table. He takes it, and then he offers it back to us in a completely different way. We offer repentance, he gives forgiveness. We offer my time, he gives eternity. We offer our sickness, he gives me his health. Liturgical worship is where we exchange our lives for the life of Jesus. It's not magic. It's not just showing up in these doors. That's why we talked about the house of prayer. It's not just show up here on Sunday and receive. It's not like that. It's build and build and build and build. And we offer to God all those things. And we pour ourselves. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky because I get to hold the bread and the wine. And I always think of that. When people ask me to pray for them, okay, during the liturgy, I literally think, okay, is I'm putting it into the bread. Like I'm giving it and putting it in there, like get it away from me. And that's what they used to do in the Old Testament. They used to take the lamb and put all the sins on the lamb and then throw the lamb on the altar and chop his head off. So that's what we do with the, with the body, with the bread. We put it all in the bread. And if you come and you got no prayer, you got no repentance, you got no thanksgiving, you, got, you don't care about the rest of the body of Christ, you, and you put nothing in, nothing in, nothing back. Nothing in, nothing back. But when you come to the table of the Lord and you pour yourself into it, you know what he does? He pours himself back into it and gives it back to us. This is the way, this is the principle of all of life. Anything that you give God, you give it to him. And based on what you put in, he puts in and he gives it back. Those who give God nothing makes it very simple. You get nothing. Those who give themselves get himself. What I want to do now 
So I'm going to invite our music team to come back up on stage real quick for a quick song here. Because what I want us to do before we finish, just spend a little bit of time in prayer just to get ourselves in front of God and to say, God, that what we need, and agree with me on this one, we don't need sermons, we don't need books, we don't need nice stories. What we need, Lord, is we need you and your healing touch. Agree? We need the Lord to come inside of us and heal us. And we need to remind ourselves of that, okay? And we'll do that right now. What we can do now is stand up for a prayer, okay? We'll sing a song together, and we'll conclude in prayer.
Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, you are all that we need. And forgive us, Lord, for so many times trying to put you into a box and trying to tell you how we should worship you. Lord, we just need you. You are our healer. All of us are sick. And all of us have, have, have stuff inside of us that's too big for us to, to handle ourselves. We need you as our good physician to come and heal us. So forgive us, Lord, for telling you how to be worshipped. Help us to, to, to humble ourselves and to understand how you desire to be worshipped. Help us to, when we attend liturgical prayer, Lord, not just go in in like a, a dry way, but to realize that you're giving yourself to us. Lord, we, we give ourselves to you entirely. We thank you for the gift that you have given to us yourself, which is yourself. Pray that you'd help us to make the most of our liturgical prayer and to value what it is that you've given to us and experience the same power as the early church did and have that same communion, that same oneness that you so desired to have with each one of us. We pray this in the name of your only begotten Son, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Sorry I kept you a little bit late today, but the skins aren't playing today, so hopefully it's not a big deal. Have a great week. What if the armies of the Lord Picked up and dusted off their swords Vowed to set the captive free And not let Satan have one more What if the church for heaven's sake What if his people what if his what if his people prayed? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Everybody, we're uh, in the bathroom. It's it. Uh... Skins, which is that even politically correct? Oh right? wait, no. So we actually bought some. Uh, we did I say bye? You did. Okay. Um. Back to extreme makeover pain. Everybody, we're uh, in the bathroom. It's it. Uh... Mm. <laughs> we just wanted to show Miss Stinky Pants over here what we have in store for her. Miss Stinky Pants. Yeah, don't you ever feel a little stinky sometimes? I think I'm offended. No, don't be offended. But uh, we did get you some deodorant, and this is probably the biggest change to date. She used to have 12 hour odor protection. Now, I don't know. So these are actually your neighbors. Oh. Yeah. Hi. Hey. Hey. They really hate your guts, but they've agreed to be your friends and they're gonna come over about once a month only for the first year. We have some incentives for them. You don't need to know about that though. Okay. But you can go ahead and you know, they'll come over and you can, you know, Rely you, on them to Are help. you telling me you got me friends? Yeah, we got friends. But you need friends. We have to add a human element to this. It's not just all about like the the grazzles and the, the dazzles and the, the materialism. Shut up! You got a cookbook now. I do. You don't have to struggle so much with making meals. I don't. Your mama should have taught you a lot better. Can't bring my mama into this. I think that you're really gonna like this one. It's kind of distracting. Good! <laughs> it's going. So, do you feel like you stink sometimes? I can't say that I do. In the uh, living room and Extreme Makeover Prayer Edition, we're really excited to show you what uh, Marge has. Uh, Welcome to Extreme Makeover Prayer Edition. We just wanted to show you the dining room this time, and this is something that Marge is really gonna like. I feel. No.